Sarah Bynum, and I'm the director of the MFA program in writing. And I am just overjoyed to welcome you to the first ever MFA thesis reading. Um, what a thrill and an honor to introduce our first three graduates of the UCSD MFA program in writing. Courtney Killian, Caitlin Salamini, and John Fluker. Each of these writers truly embodies the spirit in which this program was founded. The spirit of risk-taking and community building, of readiness to venture across disciplines and languages and genres. They have contributed to and shaped this program in more ways than they can know. I am so proud of the work that they've done here and so excited about the work they will continue to do. Each of our readers will be introduced by a fellow writer and member of the MFA program. So please join me in celebrating and welcoming our three graduates. Hello, I get to introduce Courtney. When I first met Courtney, I instantly liked her. One reason was because her last name has the word kill in it, which I think, is, I think that's kind of cool. But another reason was because I instantly felt like she was down to earth. And I'm still not really sure what exactly um, down to earth means, like what that means exactly. But after becoming familiar with her work for these past two years, there's this key thing with the words down and to earth. Her work seems to shift our gaze there, and that feels especially important in a world where we slap everything over with cement. Buildings are built to almost shift our gaze away from it, and even gestures like um, hope are these um, very high, imagining very far away gestures. Courtney's writing forces you to see things like earth, soil, water, plant, food, no longer in an abstract sense, uh, meaning they only become real when they're right in front of us, but instead in a larger agrarian sense immediately, um, especially in these times where our resources are commoditized, stolen from other places, how important these things are to be aware of. I've always been jealous of Courtney's use of figurative language. She takes these, these very small, thin pieces of paper with words on them, um, very flat things, and almost seems to make them pulsate, like they want to be alive. And that's been extremely enjoyable for these past two years to see that. Her work is honest fiction. Um, sometimes it's dark, and, and sometimes it's very love-love, and um, sometimes it's very sensual. And these, in part, also um, seem to be things necessary in order to live a full and healthy life. Um, it's been really cool. So without further ado, Courtney Killian. Thank you for the wonderful introduction, Nikolai. A lot to try to live up to. <laughs> um, thank you for everyone who's here and for the support throughout the entire two years of this program. Um, as a quick background, I'm going to read a few short excerpts from my novel in progress titled The Anatomy of Growing. 
It takes place in San Diego County and is situated against the backdrop of recent Southern California agricultural history with the water crisis and fires. This first section is from one of the first scenes. We were driving over a body of land, a small corner of a fast-moving world. San Diego County, California, where ranchers live just off the vast circuits of freeways in the sprawling expanses still tagged as rural, where tropical fruit was grown in a desert climate, where the land was laced with seismic pulsing, fault lines creasing and heaving beneath the earth, where drought made the land so dry that for the entire months of September and October, you worried about those Santa Ana winds moving one erratic spark across San Diego's metropolis and fields. I hadn't been to the San Diego area in four years. Harlan, Colin's brother, had had Colin's ear since he picked us up at the airport. Holland took a sharp turn, sending me sliding across the torn orange leather of his father's 1960s pickup, Yucatan Gold, named after its paint color. There were no seat belts. From the back seat with all the windows open, I could only hear snippets of conversation. Drought, skyrocketing water prices, fruit not maturing. A thick scar cut through the back of Harlan's shaved head from a tumor removal when he was younger. His rough hands, stained in mud and his fingernails black with dirt, gripped the wheel. His round features wobbled in the driver's seat. A large head, giant eyes, chubby arms, a belly. Colin was sitting in the front seat, his hand reaching back to hold mine. I was in loose jeans and a white t-shirt. I rarely wore a bra, and today wasn't an exception. I caught a glimpse of myself in the truck's rearview mirror. My brown hair was thrown back into a loose bun, stray hairs framing my face. I had no makeup on and it had been months since I plucked my eyebrows. Colin's shaggy blonde hair ruffled in the wind. I imagined his blue eyes intent on the familiar sights of his home road. He was trim, his arms sinewy and tanned, his features squared and tight, nothing like his brother. We wound up a steep hill and rattled onto the family ranch. Rocky Star was soldered into a tall metal gate. Harlan used controls to open the gate. I stuck my head out the window, looking into a blinking red light of a camera, watching us drive onto the property. Goosebumps rode up my arms. I was meeting Colin's parents for the first time. Colin felt my arm and looked back at me. He knew what goosebumps meant, excitement and uncertainty. He winked and then licked his finger, using it to try to tame the hair around my face. Hey, I said laughing. Harlan pulled the truck as close as he could to the side of the driveway. Avocado trees lined the road and reached far back as far as I could see. Row upon row of trunks, heavy fruit dangling from branches, a floor densely packed with leaves. The trunks were older than the branches, changing from a gray, gray to light brown, where they'd been grafted with new varieties. Harlan reached out and cupped an avocado in his hand. The fruit that's still on the trees looks good, but listen. He turned off the engine and paused. We waited. Seconds passed. I slid to the open window closest to the trees. Then I heard it, fruit falling. Every few seconds, a loud plop into dense leaves and then another from further back. Harlan shook his head. They've been falling like that since the beginning of summer. I know it's got to do with the water they're giving us from the district. Too much salt. Fruit can't size on that. The roof of leaves glowed with midday heat, sunlight splattering the undergrowth. I reached my arm out the window and lifted an avocado, shifting its weight from the tree to my hand. Um, this next one is a scene from later on uh, on the family ranch where Evan, the father, is angry because of the water being shut off from the San Joaquin River Delta from the endangered, because of the endangered fish, the smelt. Evan leapt out of his chair and yelled at the screen, tightening his fist at the weather reporter. 
Why did he still watch? Why did he lounge in his leather recliner every evening and tune into the same news channel with the same reporters and weather forecaster that pissed him off on a regular basis? Farming will be extinct in the coming years, Evan said to the room. We can't keep up with these water prices. Colin, Harlan, Evan, and myself were all sitting in the living room. No one responded. We let the words echo off the house's tall wood beam ceilings and settle around us. I never said anything during family conversations. I knew if I started talking, I might not stop, and none of it would be what they wanted to hear. Captions ran across the bottom of the muted TV on upcoming stories. One I knew they were waiting for was coming up next. Competing issues, protecting the Delta smelt and pumping water. Due to environmental activist protests, California had shut down transfer pumps to the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta to save a fish that was getting caught in the pumps and was now on the U.S. endangered species list. The consequences were enormous for farmers, sending water prices soaring and threatening more than $1 billion in agricultural crops. Evan turned the volume back on. The reporter, a spongy-looking man with a shiny purple tie, reeled out his news story. Farmers in California... They're losing their land, their crops, and their livelihood, all because of a two-inch fish. Sarah Palin said, we call that bait. Would the news be different if the salt were several feet long, or a kind of bird, I thought? Do you think they even ask a farmer? When none of us responded, Evan continued, where do these politicians think their food will be grown when they dry up everything south of the Delta? We slouched in our chairs and put our head down. Evan took it as an opening to get louder. California has five million acres of farmland, he spewed. His pale skin flushed as if sunburnt, the color rising along his arms, speckling his hands. They shut off the water to these farmers for a fish, hundreds of thousands of acres and tens of thousands of jobs lost. He stood up losing balance, lilting backwards. He twirled his arms in large fanning circles. Colin got out of his chair, putting his hand softly on his father's shoulder to steady him. We know, Dad, Colin said, hugging him. Evan patted Colin's back, his breathing catching, gurgling. I watched Evan's arms drop limply from his son's. Colin hugged him harder, as if to root him there. Evan's arms tightened at his sides as he wiggled himself from Colin's embrace. I'd like to think I'm more important than a two-inch minnow. I felt my chest constrict. He wasn't. No more important than a fish or each of the trees he had growing on his property. Evan breathed deeply, a whimper emerging from his throat his eyes glistening. Those tree huggers, those damn Sierra clubbers, they're some of the worst people out there. This stung in a way I would have never expected it to. Harming the environment more than they're helping it, concentrating on one small thing and then going crazy without thinking of the other things in the system, he said. Evan threw up his arm as if, Evan threw up his arm as if all of this were a low-lying cloud and with a shove of his wrist he could send it to another part of the house. Here's your story, Delta Smelt. You're a big part of legislation, of wildlife protection. You've choked out the water for agriculture and raised prices for farmers. You've landed yourself on the endangered species list. Weren't you excited? But we need your water, your San Joaquin River Valley home. Your silver translucent is nearly see-through. You're less than two inches long, full-grown. Your school could fit in the palm of my hand. They've turned off the pumps for you turning the breadbasket of the world into the unemployment capital of America. Let me give you an aerial image. Dry, unmoving canals, land quilted in hardening browns and burning greens, 
shriveled crops. Look closer. You might see the thousands of specks of people. Human beings, mind you. Farmers who have lost the land that their families worked on for generations and immigrant workers without jobs. All huddled in the crumbling parched soil. Listen, we need those pumps back on. Can't you see? Only a few of you will get caught in them. You can consider it another sacrifice in the animal kingdom. You might even get on another list. One that will keep you in history for saving the farmers, for saving California agriculture. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to have a sip of water. Okay, so this is another um, separate scene that takes place later when the narrator is sitting in the grove. I sat still for a long time on a rock in the middle of the grove. I could hear the occasional avocado drop, the irrigation system turning on, tick, misting me along the trees. I shiver ran along my spine underneath my damp shirt. Everything shifted, started to spin. The looper catchers baited with virgin swung in the trees. The branches combed my hair. The leaves stroked my skin. I started to feel what Colin loved about this place, knew what he meant when he described it as having an experience that moved through every part of you. Something that touched my mind, my synapses as they struck each other, made me aware of my fingertips against my worn jeans and the gold-etched charm from Spain resting at my throat and the striped scarf with its different textures tugging at my neck and the coolness of the space and the surroundings moving around me. And all those things that we are feeling <clears throat> simultaneously but not supposed to process all at once because it would be too much information. It would be chaos. But this is what I feel now, and it is not chaos. It is something in between hovering, in between levitating, in between feeling so human that I know it is right. Find this in another's face, in another's movements. The etchings of lines and sunspots and dark, deep eyebrows that brush against the glass frame or eyelashes that are different on both sides of a face, bright blonde and then dark brown or chap lips or someone who needs water or space or air. What do we give to others? How do we move through space? What is touch and how does a finger, and how does moving a finger down the tip of another's nose or down the indent in the back, imagining the spine in all of its elasticity and all of its curves and all of its bumps, rumples, links, bring you closer to something than you've ever been before, but you still cannot touch it, still cannot explain it. That it cannot be contained on this page or in these words and is not enough for this one moment. It is a thousand voices or five. It is those that I've let in and those that I chose not to listen to. Even when they tell me, I can do this, I can. In every second, we are creating a moment. What more can you do than move through this landscape in search of experience that resonate through every part of you, that make you feel completely alive, and then some, that awaken something in you, even if you are not sure what has been awakened or how or what perfectly paired moments in the sequence happen to occur as they just did, like that, to make you feel like this, like someone new, like someone who could walk out of this story and into another story that is more real and more yours than the one before it. Okay, um, this last section takes place towards the end of the novel after a fire has come through and destroyed most of the ranch and the trees there. Color has history, and our sky is black. 
During the day, it melts into a metallic gray, its edges a charcoal red, as if it has burned too. During the night, it glows with heat, tender skin pulled back to expose a wound. It reminds me of flying off my bike as a child, my blackened knees beating up with dark blood after skidding across asphalt. I want to wrap this scene in gauze, blot it, allow its damaged edges time to scab. I watch a fuchsia sun drip through black, historic black. Colin is peeling ash off our cars like plastic. Long strands of filmy residue come off in strips. Soot snows on us. The wind finally stopped. None of what I want to say, to scream, has been said before, not from my mouth. Fields, crops, homes, cindered, embered, ashed. We had watched the fire roll, licking over the hills. None of us could leave. How is there fear in something so beautiful? The Santa Ana winds gave us reason to to slather on extra lip balm and lotion. My lips would crimson from the dryness. My high school tennis coach would say the winds made it look like I had been sucking on a cherry popsicle. And electricity would run through the air, its current wrapping itself through my hair and tugging hot shivers up my spine. It brought me back to my childhood excitement for anything resembling weather in Southern California. The winds were alluring. They signaled that something was brewing, being kicked up, rustled from its resting place. The winds blew westward through the canyons and spread the wildfires. Red witch winds, devil's breath. They picked up surface dust, stinging our bare skin and scattering sharp, jagged fronds of palm trees along roads. Later we heard that the man who started the fire had gotten lost. He started his signal fire in the dry dip of a hill less than half a half a mile away from homes. I remember something about shedding skin from a biology class and wonder about our land shedding its skin. Humans shed 105 pounds of skin by the time they are 70 years old. Every 27 days, we have an entirely new outer layer of skin cells, almost 1,000 new skins in an average lifetime. Keep busy, Colin continues to whisper. It is one of the few things we say to each other. Colin and I are covered in it when we come in, head to foot in soot, in the ashes of our trees. I hadn't noticed how filthy I am until I look at Colin's body darkened in film. When we wash, it is one of the first times that I don't, that I don't feel better to be clean. I can't sleep. I fumble through papers and grab a blank copy of Colin's irrigation map, the map we use to color code how we would irrigate each week. I write our memories out by, by location. Colin, this is for you, because it's the only way I know how to speak. And each of these numbers refers to a place on on a map. One, the first time I installed irrigation pipe with you, gluing each together after coating them in purple primer. All this pipe runs like veins under charred hills. Two, here I felt your sun tattoo warm my hip, and the branches from the tree of your other tattoo become part of my skin, my earrings roving over your lips. Three, the mint leaves that we use to make iced tea for cool breaks and bath tea for summer days grows here. Four, an imprint, how I will always remember that kiss, not our first, but the one that I can still feel on my neck, on my thigh, under the blanket the cobalt sky wrapped us in. Five, where your grandfather built the original access road. Six, here we cut the agave and attempted to make tequila, baking its fronds. Seven, where they came out to listen to our land and found water, heard it echo and bounce off rock, where we danced, jumping and hollering as the water burst from the ground from our own well. 
8, our wildflower field, where the shadows of hummingbirds flitted across the pages of my journal. I leave the map next to Colin as he sleeps. I want to be in the dirt again, dirty my hands in ash and keep working. Moonlight hits the scars that flick across my upper forearms, drops of whitened skin from welding in short sleeves. I remember my mom's scars, similar speckles along her knuckles and wrists from oil splattering out of a hot pan and biting where it hit while she cooked. We heard about a woman from the city council in Escondido who ordered a fire truck to stand guard on her street, about sisters burning in their car on their way home, about those who never received the warning phone call, about the husband-wife who met their neighbors in their pool, their heads scabbing and hypothermia setting in. I dig my hands further into the charred soil where a garden had been. A light turns on behind me, its angled beam shining on a, on a single blade of grass that had somehow been missed. I read that some plant species actually thrive on growing through burnt soil. It is their ideal environment. Colin's shadow falls over me. He leans his arm lightly on my shoulder and then pulls me in roughly, kissing my forehead. I think of its imprint. He sees my hand cupping green against black. Just like jumping through fire, he says. Like being reborn and harvesting lavender under the full moon. Like hearing fruit twist and pop from the branch. And feeling its weight shift from umbilical cord to palm. Like shedding skins and dangling your feet off the edge of the world. Thank you. just a slow oh there we go okay hopefully it will hello I'm Amy Forrest Caitlin Salamini's love affair with China <clears throat> began long before she started to write the novel she'll be reading from today while still an undergrad at Harvard University she wrote for the let's go China series of travel guides she earned a master's in East Asian studies from USC She's fluent in Mandarin and has spent several years, all told, living and working in China in various capacities. She's been a media associate. She spent a year researching her novel under a Fulbright grant. She was a lead singer for a rock band in Beijing. And next winter, she'll return to China to host a program on China Central Television called Rediscovering China. I asked her recently what her favorite thing about China is, and she replied, the squat toilet smell. There's nothing like it, especially when it's mixed with the floral jasmine incense burning by the sink. She also loves the immediate intimacy of living in such a crowded place. There isn't room for civilities in China, she says, which can be bizarrely liberating for someone raised in New England. I sent Kate this picture once. We had a running joke about monkeys, and she said, <laughs> she goes, 
Is that the Singapore Botanical Gardens? <laughs> that's so Kate. <laughs> I mean, how can you tell that that's... Anyway. <laughs> Kate's impressive CV suggests not only her intelligence and drive, but her deep connection to the people and culture of China. Her fondness for the squat toilet smell suggests her sense of humor and her openness to the vagaries of the human body and her immediate recognition of the Singapore Botanical Gardens <laughs> says so much about her wonderful eye for detail. I hope you'll enjoy listening for these things in her work as much as I do. Please join me in welcoming my friend, Caitlin Salamini. Oh, there are waters. Hi, thank you, Amy. That was like a dissertation on me. I like that. <laughs> I'm so flattered. Um, and thank you to everyone for being here and all the, the faculty and friends and family that have made this MFA program possible. We really, really appreciate it and are so honored to be the first graduating class. Um, uh, I have a little task for you all, actually. I, I, I couldn't decide what to read, so you get to vote. By hand, please. Um, natural disaster or sex? And don't mix. Oh, I knew it. I think I heard Christina in the back. The sex. Oh, thank you. Wait, okay, seriously, hands up. Natural disaster. Sexual disaster. <laughs> um, sex. Okay, all right. Fine. I actually really wanted to read the other one. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, nevertheless, this is an, an excerpt from my novel, The Soap Tree. Um, as Amy mentioned, it does take place in China. And um, in this scene, it's actually right after the natural disaster, which is the Tangshan earthquake, which some of you may be familiar with. It takes place in Beijing. Um, this, sorry, the scene takes place in Beijing, despite the fact that the earthquake is in Tangshan, which is a bit farther away. Um, uh, there's a few characters that you would need to know, including Baba, the main character, who here is known as Chen Guan Miao, and his wife, Li Ming. I think that's about it. Screams outside in the courtyard blasted the walls of the apartment. Running footsteps of frightened neighbors echoed their pattering down the dark stairwells. We followed these sounds into the courtyard, where suddenly the shrill voices were replaced by hushed tones, as if everyone was afraid that the sound of human voices re would renew that shaking again. Our neighbors spoke reassuringly, reminding one another that we were all okay, we'd survived. Children rubbed sleep from their eyes, clung to their mother's shins. The Danway leaders jogged back to the factory offices, an hour later returning to report that the earthquake's epicenter was over 100 kilometers to the northeast in the city of Tangshan. Tangshan, a mountain city that gave China its first coal mines. Tangshan, a city we studied in the history of the Republic of China courses in primary school for its industrial might, its delicate porcelain and sturdy steel. None of us in that cluttered courtyard had relatives in Tangshan, we told one another, as if, without family there, we were unharmed. The phone lines were down, so we couldn't telephone anyone, and for days it felt as if we were a large family, the way families in Beijing used to live, clustered around a communal courtyard, listening to one another's snores at night, shuffling past each other to the sandalwood incensed outhouses in the morning. Sometimes there would be an aftershock, and mothers would scream, burying their children beneath their bodies while the buildings around us swayed and creaked before settling into their old, unobtrusive habits. We made stir-fries of cabbage and carrots over a shared fire in a walk someone donated to the cause. We waited on the inspectors to visit our district to declare our home safe enough to return to. We did all this while in Tangshan, an entire city was buried beneath itself, and with it, 
Mrs. Huang's persistent questions about my past. Later, Li Ming told me her mother admitted she believed she caused the earthquake with her undue nosiness, that she alone was at fault for the loss of hundreds of thousands of our fellow countrymen and women's lives. Perhaps it was this guilt that killed her several years later as she sat on her balcony overlooking the Nanjing Hills of her youth, just three blocks from the hospital where my Li Ming was born and named for the sun's rise. But before all that could happen, the earthquake shaking had clinked in her bowls and Li Ming's mother had glared across at me from underneath the kitchen table we were, where we were all knees to chin stunned. She had stared straight into my eyes and mouthed the words that stuck to my skull like a curse. I know who you are. No one had heard a thing as we tiptoed over the porcelain bowl shattered beneath our feet, our heels dragging one another's beet red blood and painted strokes across the gray concrete. Down the stairs, past the trash chutes, past the orange and white kittens birthed that very night, their fur still matted with sticky birth fluid. Mrs. Huang had said she'd known who I was. Mrs. Huang understood what hands like this could do, but not my leeming. No, leeming didn't know what strength arose from within bodies that were too large for their own good. When the man dwelling inside them instructed them to reach, but they grasped. Or when the child's voice said, give me your hand, but the arm failed him. Mrs. Huang understood this. She must have lost over and over again the way I had. The inability to reach out to hold a woman's hand when asked. Legs could kick me underwater. Wrists could slap at my face. And from beneath the surface, the sky can crest with sloshing waves. Clouds froth, and all you thought you once knew is whitewashed by sun, by the memory of a sacred past that has lost all its meaning with the passing of time, the inefficiencies of human memory. The first morning after the Tangshan earthquake, as I awoke from a dream in which the sky was replaced with earth and we all walked upside down, Li Ming's face greeted my awakening. What was the dream exactly? I'd always felt like that poet-philosopher Chuangzi, as if my life also straddled that boundary bef between waking and sleeping for as long as I could remember, and as if I was never sure which days I awoke to reality and which were just extensions of my dreaming self. Where was I again? With the rising of the sun, Beijing creaked and moaned. Buildings settled against one another like drunken friends, starlings scattered into the too bright sky claiming it as their own. Birds can make the air their home. We're not as lucky. I had to tell Leeming everything she'd ever want to know about me. I wanted to show her who I really was. But what had once been my most treasured possessions were now piled like rubbish on the floor of my dormitory. Levi's collected poetry splayed open, its pages fluttering in the breeze from a shattered window. Leeming's letter letters pulled outside by the passing wind were some caught on a tree's branch, others landing atop the slanted stone rooftops of neighboring dormitories. My glasses, the ones my father had made especially for me when we lived in Shanghai, were trampled in the chaos that was pockmarked Zhang and Shalili, frantically wrapping themselves in sweat-soaked bedsheets to run outside into the crowded courtyard. That wasn't the sex. There's more coming later. Sorry. Um, <laughs> how quickly all the buildings became carapaces of an outmoded way of thinking that would never be ours again. For now, the sky was our ceiling. One, another body, one another's bodies are only walls. Leeming and I absently clung to one another night after night, overhearing our neighbors' nightmares like whispered gossip. Did I know yet then that another's nightmares could become one's own? That we're not immune to the dreams of those who sleep beside us? While we slept unfitfully, just over a hundred kilometers away, in the once tall, once proud city of Tangshan, entire neighborhoods were buried beneath warped steel beams, under twisted phoenix bicycles and empty window frames. Beneath a blanket of buildings, the entire city of Tangshan slept silently together day and night, day and night. All those cycles of days and nights, sun up, sun down, repeating such that the sleeping bodies would never again awake, never again know the sound of a morning's touch. If only, the People's Daily soon reported, we had heeded the warnings of Tangshan's resident dragonflies, who, just days earlier, departed the city en masse, attuned beyond human ability to the Earth's impending movement. <laughs>
Of course, I would not know of my fallen books, the lost letters, the glasses, the ever-sleeping residents of Tangshan, the surviving butterflies, <laughs> dragonflies, until much, much later. All I knew was that when we slept in the courtyard, Leeming and I dreamed next to one another, one eye always open, watching for the stars to peel off that tapestry of black sky to land atop our heads with a sparkling thump. Like the chips of pea-green paint that would soon depart our apartment ceiling, the plaster dotting our scalps, scalps like dandruff, like snow, what did it matter the metaphor? The sky didn't fall. You were watching me or I was watching you. Whose eyes did the gazing and whose did the beholding? Were we sleeping with our eyes open or were we awakening with our minds closed? We'll never know the answer because when morning rose gold and pink above the city's tall buildings, see, shadows peeling across the courtyard, see, a woman's hip-wide shape hovering above you, towing at your shoulder, you were there and I was sleeping. Or I was there and you were sleeping or one of us was pretending to do so for the other's satisfaction of being the first to witness the other's awakening. Wake up, comrade Chen, you said. You nudged your toe deeper into my shoulder blade, and I wanted to reach up to hold that thick, bare ankle of yours to press it into my cheek. I wanted to say, you're here, as if just saying the words would make that fact true. But one day this would not be so. A tin cup of water was what you passed me. A hand is what you placed on my shoulder, rubbing me softly and then recoiling the hand to your hip, as if you'd forgotten that we were now more than just comrades in the Danway, but also in our dreams. Tell me what you wanted to say last night, you said. You tugged at my shirt sleeve, and your eyes made the expression of pleading. Wu Wei, I said, suddenly realizing what I'd forgotten all this time, how the man to whom my leeming was once promised had a name that could mean, if spoken in different tones, inaction. Inaction, no action. Chuangzu's philosophy. I wasn't meant to take action, or rather, I was meant to allow what was a natural action to unfold naturally. I wasn't supposed to say one word in response to Mrs. Huang's pestering pleading. I shouldn't have tempted fate. Astonished, I slapped my hands across my own mouth as my tongue pressed fervently into my teeth. Wu Wei leaming scoffed. She slapped my arm and laughed so loudly that her father, attempting to sleep beneath the courtyard's only parasol-like aspen, shushed her and rolled onto his side away from us. I don't know what you're talking about, she said. Your father, I said. But what was there to say? Her father had said she was promised to Wu Wei, hadn't he? I think you're the poet, leaming said, shaking her head and helping me to my feet. We both smelled of unsatisfying sleep, of the apartment's building's shed skin powdering our heads, our hands. We knew we'd have to dig ourselves out of this, that soon we could surface from the rubble together, smiles stretching our sunlit faces, faces of the living, the survived. It was the city that would not recover. Yes, walls would be rebuilt, roads repaved, porcelain teacups glued back together, the cracks soon invisible to the naked eye. But if you touched a wall, rubbed the surface of a sidewalk, or held a teacup in your hands, you could sense the hidden structural damage. You'd know, all at once, the faulty permanence of objects, how quickly we're all made frivolous. But for now, unable to see the cracks in the walls, Li Ming said, I told my father there's no such thing as Wu Wei. And I thought she, she meant both the man and the Taoist meaning of the word. All that was left was action. It came without saying what she'd say next. I'll marry you next Monday. Li Ming extended her hand towards mine, our fingers entwining for the first time in what felt like a very long time, or was it? As we walked towards her parents' apartment, ready to return home. Around us, in the coming days, sleepwalkers stumbled to their shattered apartments, began to make sense of the bookshelves toppled to floors, window glass shattered underfoot, ancestral portraits shaken off their nails in the wall, the still smiling faces of the dead lying face down on the floor. The next Monday, Leeming and I would hang the red embroidered wedding lianhua, lianhe xiahua, made for us above the very place we'd felt the earth shift beneath us a week earlier. We would stack pyramids of oranges. We'd read from Mao's little red book. We'd tie red strings together and hope that you allow would protect our love as the Taoist story promised. 
And then one day, several weeks later, after her parents moved next door, I would be lounging in our newly acquired apartment, watching Li Ming stacking our wedding plates atop one another in the cabinet we inherited from her parents. I'd hear her sticky thighs peel apart and suddenly, unexpectedly, crave the salt of her skin. How long had it been since I'd wanted a woman like that? What was hidden beneath the folds of her pleated summer skirt, behind those drooping white cotton underpants frayed at the seams? When did the girl I'd fallen in love with in Jiangxi become this Beijing city woman wearing her Danwei's uniform skirt suit and showing off unintentionally, or was it intentional, the thickness that had padded itself upon her once girlish figure over the past decade? What had I lost in that time, that distance? 140 kilometers away, a city was silenced. The snores of entire families stopped forever when that shaking shattered the sky, cements landing like heavy rain atop matching heads, and yet... All I wanted was to reach up to touch the place where my new wife's thighs peeled apart, to feel human again. I stood, blinded briefly by the late-day sunlight that skittered white across our one-room apartment. I folded my people's daily and placed it gingerly on the glass-top kitchen table. I watched my hands fumble their way towards my wife's bare legs, my fingers walking up to that very squeezed spot of thigh, those two self-proclaimed carrot sticks she'd hated since middle school. With my farmer's fingers, I... I oops, sorry. With my farmer's fingers, I probed so deeply. My wife's knees buckled. Without a word, I carried her back to our shared bed beside the kitchen table, leaving the remaining wedding plates on the floor. It's time for a child, I said. But what I would really wanted to say was I was sick of talking about death. I was fatigued by the weight of all those Tangshan bodies hanging heavily on the voices of Radio Beijing, wafting dead-footed past the blurred scenes of our sweat-soaked nightmares. I wanted to choose life. What other choice was there? Li Ming's thighs were thick with flesh beneath me, her body moistened, summer ready. Her chest heaved and I could feel her pulse on her tongue as she probed past my teeth to reach my mouth's depths. Her body flushed with blood, all the way to her cheeks, and everything burst forth red, red, red. Her cheeks, her breasts, even the damp, dark crevices above her collarbone. I watched this all while my wife's eyes were clenched caustically shut, her mouth open only slightly, her tongue still reaching awkwardly past her lips for mine. We gripped the sheets, one another's hip bones, and waited for the moment we knew would soon arrive to pass. When her breath slowed, I peeled myself off of her, the scent of her, dust and lemon, still clinging to my skin. You're not leaving so fast, are you, Lao Chen? Our first time in bed together in man, as man and wife, and she was always calling, already calling me Old Chen. How many nicknames would she give me in the course of our marriage? The answer, I didn't know then, was not just one. Had I known, I would have sat back on the bed that instant, would have asked her to say my first marital nickname over and over again like a lyric so I could relish in this freshly birthed identity. But I didn't know then what I do now. Do we ever? Instead, I pulled my underwear to my hips, then slipped into the shared men's bathroom at the end of the hallway to quickly wash the fluids off my thighs and stomach. Clean, I rejoined her in bed where she was staring meditatively at the ceiling. We need to paint the ceiling, she said, nodding at the flaking pea green walls ahead above our heads. Will you paint with me, Lao Chen? Her voice lilted sleepily, her rising tones losing their usual evening strength. Paint. Yeah, sure, Miss Huang, I said, squeezing in beside her to share in her view of the sad-looking scene above us. We were already taking for granted that our apartment ceiling would never fall atop our heads. Silently, we'd rebuild our lives from that first night of crumbling, forgetting we'd ever known what it felt like to run our fingers along the cracked walls. We'd cover with plaster the exposed beams and wires. Pasts could be buried. We could make a solidness of our lives together, that night, we'd made ourselves a daughter. As my wife's belly grew bigger, we reassured one another that the, wife, that the earth would not move again. It couldn't. Until one day it would. And on that day, we'd shake our heads, looking into one another's faces incredulously, wondering how we ever managed to feel safe here. 
How we ever believed the earth wouldn't shake itself loose again, casually shedding us like one last layer of skin, a pleated skirt. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm very honored to be introducing our, our next reader, John Pluker, officially, um, JP to the rest of us. Um, but I can't pretend to uh, be introducing him like I, I would a poet I don't know, um, since we've been working together for two years, and he's um, going to be one of my best friends. Um, so, And I can't distinguish JP, the writer, um, from his work, and um, I, I hope I'll never have to. Um, so there's a commitment to um, diversity of form and genre and language in his works. Um, reading his texts during the last two years of the MFA program, uh, one gets the impression he doesn't want to get too comfortable in one mode of writing. Um, he's already written a couple of DIY chapbooks, Roots into Texas, which is a wonderful collection of prose, and Undone, um, a new one um, that's being released from Doozy Press. Um, his translation of Martin Solaris's The Black Minutes earned him a spot in the list of the best translated works of fiction by the University of Rochester just this past January. Um, hey. <laughs> um, so, but I'm only one person, so I asked a few people to give me one word description of JP's works. And um, I took a survey, of, uh, and here are the five. Um, number one, innovative. Two, grounded. Three, intoxicating, four, built, and five, playfully pastoral. Um, so let's hear see some of those qualities um, from the manuscript he's reading tonight um, forward us over. It's a part of the ongoing project that appropriates published diaries of explorers who attempted to map the physical and cultural terrain of the interior provinces, um, specifically Texas, JP's home state. Um, through a wide variety of techniques, such as cut-ups and erasures, translations and mistranslations, JP's work adds to this ongoing dialogue around um, documentary poetry. Um, here, though, um, there's a sense that, unlike other um, pieces of conceptual writing, that this work seems like there's, um, there's no eradication of the, the, the lyric, lyrical gesture. Um, it, and the lyrical gesture might come from his choices of techniques, um, that he applies, and also from this wonderment he has towards um, his subjects, rather than a profession of, of feelings. Like Texas of the 19th century explorers, um, his manuscript is vast and complicated, with its rules being made as it goes along. Um, so in the first piece of the manuscript, um, the reader well, I'm going based on a draft that he gave me earlier. So I'm going to quote, um, I guess he's changed, but I'm going to quote that anyway. We are in a land, we are in a page, you are walking with me. So um, tonight, um, I'm, I'm glad to be introducing JP to the podium, blogger, translator, interpreter, and of course, colleague, friend, and poet, John Pluger. Thanks, Dustin, for for calling me a poet, for one, um, which is something when I first got here, I didn't think I'd be standing up to, to, to be called and for being such a great friend. Um, and I, when we started the program in one of the first meetings, Sarah uh, talked to us all about uh, how we should um, how, kind of welcome to the play, welcome to the sandbox, um, was kind of how I remember it. Um, 
and that we should all take time to play in the sandbox. And I remember thinking that was a little bit of a strange way to think about moving across the country to an MFA program. <laughs> um, but, but now I've been happy to play in the sandbox for two years, and, I'm, and I'll happily continue to play in a um, sandbox of my own building and collective building, hopefully. So, so that's to say thanks a lot to the program and the faculty and staff. Um, Tanya, I think, deserves a round of, I don't even know. If she deserves a round of applause. <laughs> for staff and to the friends um, and everyone else. And to my family for being here. Um, as Lester said, uh, these texts do swirl around lands and rivers in Texas. And there's images. So let's get some images. Okay, so the texts do swirl around lands and rivers in Texas and in northern Mexico in Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, um, más que nada, the part that's closest to Texas. Um, and it does draw on chronicles of exploration from the 19th century and even further back to the 16th century and 17th and 18th. Um, and it thinks about, just to give a little introduction, it thinks about what it means to cross things, genders, creeks, the space between two men, landscapes, genres, art forms, experiments, pages. It's called Fortis Over. On a page, in una página, in a land, in una tierra, walks with me. Camina conmigo. A veces habla en español. Sometimes speak English, or my visage. No hay por qué traducir esto. Eh, aquel comanche. Eh, wild white. Eh, naming, apela. Lose these words. This stream flows into the larger, the stopping place, unknown. A smaller arroyo loses its words in the Guadalupe. Corre, corre. The words swallowed the river, bounces on minerals, brillan. Headed to the gulf, engulf, words, dilute into multitude. Estos años que pasan sin saber, cruza que corra, que cruce, corre, corre. Corrosive runs the water. El agua rancia que corre. Corrode. We're explorers of this, that this, eyes down from on high, descending onto the page. Or is it the land, these portions sectioned into zones, and expanding previous to mapping territories with curving lines, dots, sweeps, denude the script, Scribe for days. Clouds begin to the north, dark with hillside, tumbling, a sandy color ground. Five darkened squares that the place where before, three of the squares with lines leading away and around. These, these, careful, careful, not an easy bank to hurdle, to pull up, out, no squiggles, no barriers. This page is easy to cross. This, this, that, this, these, those arrows, flows with water, separated from the expanse of gray. This shading on the page, color, sandstone, layers of lignite, cover this vast country with xylotite, abounds. Palafox village, 
ruinated, these reeves do laugh, brave, or devoutly situated the commandants. That this town of Palafax, as well as the rancho, were destroyed by the Indians about 1820. Descendants, defendants, defend the descent. The land referred to, not being necessary to the understanding of the opinion, has been omitted. Can you bathe in the space between these thick, shaded lines, segmented as if worms climbing down the remains of fields or bandages crisscrossed in patterned bliss? In the space between to the bottom, care not to disturb the mass of dots in the river. These, these indicate the shape of sandy island masses, and between them the softest of dotted lines extend from one another. Descend from the narrowest side of the page to the open expanses on the east. For it is the east we are mentioning, no? An arrow grows out of the compass rose. Some mention in the arrow of the Comanche. Some mention in the gloom of the clouds of violence. Some refusal to recognize destruction, the lonely straightness of these lines. This map of straight lines, of a violence of no violence, timid dots, the lingering dark clouds, the only remnant of the past battle, and the onslaught arriving from the same north. Wandering up onto the mesa, scaling the rounded dark shading, all is lifting and descending. Nodding, observe a must the particular. The camino is traced on a terrain of arcs and carriages, a cupboard of mimosas, quartz, jaspe, cornstone, chalcedony, the Comanches and Lipan Apaches, frozen in stairs, destroyed the ancient Presidio, assuredly captained by a North American. The map, calm line, arc sweeps down, a troubled corner, a deceptive moment, tranquility, disease. Page delimits the river's flow, arrow downstreaming, pointing, beginning, those tiny, these boxes, those. Mission, the limits. Dang, son, plan. Rivers, river. Manuscript, construct white. Part, general terrain. Multiple streams, cut and remiss, O minister of winter. Run, O north, parting from 30 degrees, 32 degrees latitude. The reeds do Rio Sabina back and fortify a progress. From top to south, a little, and pa, O the Sioux do, Rue so, a poet issues duress. O oh, name, patron, pours sur the rive left. She abuts into the Rio Rojo at Nachitoches, part 33 degrees as the lat. Mark connects the trembling lines with one solid linea divisoria. No rive to sit, no riso to hear. We have our eyes reveyed sur the south. The page riven in two from bottom to north. Wavy, Boilarc, Plangent, Bocan, Dordrite, Sinuous, Sinuated, Bayou Pierre, Undulating, Unwound, Unwinding around, Tanaja, Snake, Accord, Curl your curve, Patron, Bayou Pierre, Stay, Stay, This, Rolling into a divisory line from Nacogdoches into Nachitoches, the feelings left in the, the, 
I named the lines, the riso, the arroyos, the, the, names, all these places, Nuevo Santander, Tamaulipas, Asinay, Texas, Texas, Las Provincias Internas, in turn, the internal. Ooh, that one's bright. Día 13. Pal, mar, es, tor, to, las, ro, bles, co, ne, jos, leo, nes, tu, na, les, go, rio, nes, i, car, den, na, les, en, si, nos, a, ves, sen, son, tles, tor, dos, lo, vos, jo, co, nos, les, mes, qui, tes, los, te, co, lo, tes, que, bra, ta, we, sos, so, pi, lo, tes, we, sa, ches, pal, mas, fai, sa, nes, calantrias, y, ga, vi, la, nes, a, pa, ches, in, di, os, co, yo, tes. Killing current, bluish, yellowish, crossing to struggling, heavens to cross our encounter. June nut dance, collect the honey, servant's honey, has danger, flavor, prairie horses, turkeys, bees, mala, risk, Frenchman, Cherokee, mulberry, membrillo, mala, touch, the west over, permit us to ceaselessly be its honey, eat that honey, good on horseback, hive. It's my sexy one. <laughs> We decided to expose ourselves, like ourselves, these wilds, dwelling, creeping, bees blossoming, region, swelling, a large quantity of people flitting from flower to flower, water on the honeycomb intoxicating and vomiting thick syrup, a transparent yellow ability to follow. The Ford soon procured the singular, I is dangerous, and I believe without being. Berlandier here surely lied, certainly his poison. Here, hold my hand, fellow, right in front of us. See there, to the right? The shapes are degrading there. These are marks on paper, and we are also marks on paper. We live here. You can tell this was manufactured. Look at the skill of even a shadow coming off of the small structure to the right. A smaller rectangle with a trapezoid on top seeming to slide off. The larger rectangular structure with the trapezoid on top is on 
the other hand sturdy. It is not leaning or precarious. Its straight lines reinforce permanence. But somehow this strong shape is shunting down the littler one, hanging off, about to fall into the penciled in, set to tumble into the, 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 dear, come with me, walk into the plain. The blotchy marks, these groupings of darkened masses, large spiked fringe, danger grows in the blotted. Lurking in these dark lines and shadows, count them, count them, all 19. You might count more. Hard to know where one mass ends and the next begins, or even what should count as a mass. What is countable? Together, a walk through penciled underbrush. Off over there, look, a protuberance. A row of parallel lines. Such a quantity of them. 48 centuries, crowned by triangles. Behind them, dark spires, the spokes of an undergirding for these drawings. Fifteen of these posts. Something is behind them, an intimation we can't see. But undisheartened, compañero, time flows forward, and this fort defends. A togethering gathers in the meaning, stuck into the top a pole, and above it a rectangle is curved down in the middle of that part of it had slipped down momentarily. This, the artist suggests, fluttering. Yes, fluttering, caused by the action of wind. Wind is a difficult thing to draw, a, a difficult thing to write. A way of wandering, my man, across in the distance, off kilter, points its left arm up into the sky, askew. A gathering of four figures in the distance, rectangles with trapezoids perched atop, to the left of each of them a darker triangle with a square, between us and them an expanse of untoned grayness. The paper takes hold, only a light shading to indicate murky reaches, across silt and sallow-hued water. Your pencil stands in for color. How to carry you physically along into the distance, what is called the background. The background rears up in the distance, the distance. The open paper cuts us off from that side. Four windows on one, the triangular roof, next to it a smaller one, a kind of shed, a smaller square. How to cross this space and move into the other mass of shadows. Querido, a paper to keep you here close to me, gripping your hand and mine. The eight ridges of penciled wave batter far edge of shadow mass and background. The backside of the mass, an island is suggested, suggested a sandbar, or not even the is- an island, the other side of the undrawn expanse, the mainland rears up. There is no there outside of this. All around us, a dark line marks the perimeter of our land. We are left to one another. To the bottom, there's written in a curly Q script, Barra del Rio de Panuco, con el fortín que hicieron los españoles en 1829. Oh, you, walk me into land, into holding. Hold my graphite mark, tilt your darkened hat, dream of flesh, sand, rivers, ink. Hard remembering, we we still hear, older and caned, still after the original. 
Vista by day, lays massive. Case say observe, in yell parage, call the came. Eagles in hand, circus villa mounds, Guerrero. Believe touch, coalesce motion, breathe for work. This work. Clouds charged with beige and darker streak, amorphous globs shading cloud. The original is you. The copying eye bathes the place. A storm is breaking on horizon, or is it a line, a mountain and damaged by towering cumulus? Colleague, this time your desire has failed you. Cain wound up the cottonwood tree. I trust in these of graphite and ink. Pricked in the refairing of our botanical collections, a subite roar grew from the tempest. Folly, the reeve rises, away the surprise is roan like the mare. Eat another motive, bien puissant. My feet direct my path, south this route, see tate, the desire to reunite, taught, take the limit. Colleague, on the plane, you tumble, trundle, but you are not a ball, but a mass of scribbled lines evoke the solitary, aid alone in the expanse. I desire to seethe you, to see with you. Get up, plus my desires augmented, plus also obstacles accrued, our encounter or rencounter. Look, the Andagines. This is the last one. We, lofty top texts, we did not follow the West to cross the river. We detained in, of, of, to, in, with, in progress. Our circumserved consistency ever traveling towards the North. The single, no, without even having seen, dread, those who suffer. Oh, rave the rub. Ford us over. and receive our, our admiration.
you all ended up reading pieces that had to do like very strongly with location and land. How did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. We got together and planned it. <laughs> was it something that, I mean, did you notice that was happening in mm -hmm. your work while you were mm -hmm. doing it? Or mm -hmm. can you talk about if there was influence happening between mm -hmm. you because of it? Or was it just completely a surprise? That we all read? Or that you're working in, in the Or that you all read? I'll go. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Talk about your work in geography. So, <laughs> so the question for the people in the future was about um, <laughs> land and why land is so important in all of our work. Um, I have been obsessed with land in an embarrassing way. Um, <laughs> obsessed with Texas and northern Mexico for far too long. And, uh, and so I'm glad that I found some ways to share that obsession in more healthy ways. Um, <laughs> uh, but I don't, I, I, these have been obsessions that have been with me for a long time. Um, yeah, and a lot of what my project is right now is grounded in, in land. Um, what's produced there, what comes from it, what the different systems we walk over, whether they're artificially engineered or the water that um, comes through it and digging wells, that the whole project, I guess, is based on land and a specific geographic location in San Diego. Um, but kind of our relationship to land and thinking about land as an actual body. Um. I would say it's something I notice in listening to the works tonight and just in our program in general because of this very visceral desire to transcend the page in many ways. I think that all of our work is struggling with that realness of things and that lack of it in times. And, and I think JP's work and both Courtney's too both try to cross that, make those crossings in ways that I think we each do differently. But... Um, and I would say for me, that's that's the desire. And definitely, I mean, as far as my background with China goes, I'm trying to explain something that, again, is very um, uh, not capable of being explained in words, <laughs> obviously. So, yeah, that helps. Other questions? Don't be shy. Uh, yeah. Very interesting to hear you all at the end of uh, several years of the MFA program. Um, and the university that I teach at, we, we send a lot of students to various MFA uh, uh, programs, and one of us is, is, is there, uh, right there. Um, I'm wondering uh, uh, if any of you would talk about having been through the program, has your own understanding about your own work changed, or what do you think about yourself as a writer differently because of that process at all? It doesn't have to be positive. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bit I mean the biggest change of the and of course I knew this was important before but the community that you get at an MFA program and getting close to other writers and people who love to write um, and that you're immersed in that on a daily basis as far as you know knowing myself as a writer I know that that I've changed a lot and I think that in a way when I came into this program I thought of myself as a very straightforward fiction writer. <laughs> and then I came here and realized that I really write prose, po prose poetry, and I border on nonfiction and fiction, and that I like to 
do experimental things in my writing. And I think I knew that before, but there was something strange as far as needing to label myself that I've been able to break out of during the time of the program. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that the program gave me permission in many ways. And while the work from which I, I read today was actually based on writings that I had started, so it had a certain form, um, new writings that I've produced have really done other things um, with form. And I feel like it, I, I guess, mostly gave me permission to do things I didn't know I was able to do otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I have had a similar experience. I specifically chose to come out here because I uh, had been informed by Cristina Rivera that the program was going to be experimental and bilingual. And, um, and that was something that um, I was very excited about. And it's definitely lived up to everything that I, and it's much more, I mean, I don't even think I knew what to expect, um, but it's, it's been wonderful. And yeah, it's provided a context for my work that I don't think I knew existed, um, or I knew existed, but I didn't know how to access it. And it's also given me a way to think about my work as artwork, as work of art, and not the reality show, but... <laughs> art practice um, as like as an artistic practice just like any other artistic practice that I'll continue with and that it gave me a way for thinking about how to how to build with other people and how to build that artistic practice collectively and individually and, and to push that forward no matter where I end up so so that was in is invaluable at all? Really? <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't know uh, exactly which programs you were teaching in or working in, but I was wondering about, the, about pedagogy, whether it was, a, it, it was interrupting the times you had to write or whether it was <laughs> Depends who's in the audience. No, I'm just kidding. Was it hard to find time to do it, or did it stimulate the writing somewhere? I, I'll start. Um, I, all three of us have had experiences in the writing programs, um, and Caitlin and I both worked in the writing programs for the full two years we were here, um, which focuses on argumentation and, and composition writing, um, which is very different than what we're doing in the program as far as creative writing. And I know that, um, I feel that that experience is part of the two years that I've gotten a lot out of that as far as public speaking and working with students and devising lesson plans that were outside of what I was focusing on, but it was difficult to find times to write at some times. Um, they're definitely very demanding. There's a lot of work at the writing programs. And I think it's, it was a good thing, but it would have been nice to have <laughs> creative, I mean, creative yeah. writing experience too in teaching. You know, and I know that that's not possible for everyone to have that too. But I do think that, for me, it was definitely a process, like Courtney was saying, of, of learning an audience, in a sense. Like, you, you have a certain persona that you take on when you're in a classroom, and you have a certain persona you take on when you're at a reading. And I don't know, maybe I'm sounding like I'm schizophrenic, but um, nothing against schizophrenia. Um, oh, gosh, this is recorded. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, you, you enter spaces and you enter as different people. And for me, I guess that was the, the learning curve of, of knowing, okay, now I'm a teacher. And a compositional writing program, and what does that mean? And what does that mean I am, I guess? Um, so I think that, that was really critical in my development as a person, I think, more than anything. Yeah. 
anything to add? No. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, Sarah. I'm really curious about what you learned from each other over the past two years, because one of the things we were really excited about putting together our first class is how different you all were uh, in terms of your, your aesthetics, in terms of your interests, and we're sort of like, how is this going to work? <laughs> um, so, but, but it worked. Um, and so I, I, I would love to hear about how, what you've gotten from each other as a, as a cohort and as, as um, peers. I'm the first this time. Anyway. I mean, and, 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 you know, not just the three of you, but yeah. the, 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 the class as a whole. I think that was one of um, the best things in coming here was that we all had such different styles and focuses of what we wanted to do in projects. Um, and genres are ways that we wrote and put together our writing. And that, in a sense, there wasn't a feeling like we were competing against each other, but we were complementing each other. And that in workshop and seeing very different things, we were able to access those writings. And, I'm sh and I know that we've influenced each other, and I know that um, in having such very different aesthetics that that has helped me to grow and see who, am I, who I am as a writer and that there's not, there's not a definition of what fiction is or what nonfiction is or what poetry is. There's multiple ways to look at it and to approach it. Um, I think I, I learned a lot from the other students in the kind of push and pull that was constantly going on, especially at the beginning, I think, as we all were um, very green um, and very kind of, we hadn't gelled in any way, so there was a lot of, like, uh, confusion and crisis. <laughs> and, but that confusion and crisis, I think, was really productive. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think a lot of us found ways to kind of help each other through that um, process and talk, talk talk through that process in ways that I don't, ex in ways that I think um, is really good for us to do amongst ourselves and, and and perhaps even stronger when it is that us as peers doing that for each other. And I was, I've been really um, happy and surprised and learned a lot from the level of generosity of a lot of people. So um, everyone came in knowing, I think, kind of having their thing or their personal experience or what they were sharing and um, on many many levels people have been really generous with what they know or what their writing is or what um, how they've been able to do things and um, and then that I think impacted me to also attempt to be gen think about what I had in a different way like oh, okay I do I have these things so um, so I so um, so like the, the readings in Tijuana that, that I've organized since I've been here, I've kind of, oh, okay, like that's one way where I can also um, reciprocate with that kind of generosity, the gift economy. <laughs> like I'll gift you this, you gift me that, and, um, and, or maybe I'll just gift you this and that'll be that, but, but that's fine too. Um, but yeah, that's been amazing and great. Yeah, I would say that well, my colleagues have both said most of what I was thinking. Um, I, I do think that, you know, we did all come in kind of, you know, you come into a new program and you don't know where you're at or what you're doing. And I personally felt like I really didn't know what I was doing. Not that I know now, but maybe know a little bit more. And I definitely feel like everyone in the program was very supportive. And also, uh, I think 
we each really worked, have, have really defined who we are by it, each of us being so different from one another that I think if we entered a program where the work was more similar in some ways, either in form or I think this cro- the cross-genre focus allows us to, to really learn who we are versus, um, I don't know, I never, and yeah, I guess following along with Courtney, I mean, it just feels really supportive and, and I know that we've already talked about continuing, you know, even for the graduates, continuing discussing, you know, um, potentially like workshopping or we've each given each other our, our um, theses, uh, <laughs> theses to see um, and shared amongst others and all that. And I can't wait for the, speaking of, a little plug for the reading next week of the, the first years that are going to be reading from their works next Wednesday here, right? Okay. Last question. You know you have them. No. <laughs> are you going to miss us? <laughs> we wish you were here. The question was, are we going to miss you? Us. 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 Who's us? Us. Oh, the whole... Every- <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you.